Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. That was, what an introduction, sorry, by the way. Hi, my name is John. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a pastor here at City Light North Adelaide, and it's my pleasure uh, to uh, welcome you again here. If you are regularly here, if you're visiting with us, um, you have picked a great week to be here. This is the, the final week of our Asking for a Friend series. Uh, where we put out the call uh, for people to submit a question that they would ask for a friend, as the saying goes. Uh, And we've had, uh, over the last 10 weeks, this week included, had a a huge variety of questions come back um, that we've addressed. And and this week, we'll be looking at uh, marriage and different issues around marriage. Um, Providentially, we didn't didn't kind of plan it this way, but marriage seems to be a hot topic in our culture right now uh, as well. Um, And we're going to kind of, we'll, we'll talk about that and address that a bit as well. But primarily, we will be looking at what, what is the deal with marriage? Um, why is marriage uh, so important? So some of the questions that, that came back around this topic that, will be, um, that, that made it such a, a good one to choose is, is the bulk effect. I think this one was one of the most popular responses. Um, some of the various ones that, that came in were these. I'll just read out some of the questions we got. Um, grammatically, I'm just going to read them out as they come. So if I sound funny, it's just, it's not me. That's my excuse for this entire thing, right? It's not me, it's the paper. Um, Christians are pretty hung up on marriage. What's the deal with LGBT slash singleness slash divorce slash living with a partner slash going out with a non-Christian slash etc.? So, big question. Um, When does truth become hate speech? Uh, Why should homosexuals obey the Bible when they don't believe in God? Um, Some of them do, but we'll we'll get to that. Why can't I live with my partner outside marriage? Why am I still single? Why shouldn't... Uh, that could... <laughs> people, <laughs> few, few, few people like, do you shower? Anyway. Um, <laughs> why shouldn't I date a non-Christian guy when all the Christian guys I've dated treat me the same way anyway? What does God think about divorce? Can a Christian get divorced? Um, how do gender roles impact this? Should women stay in an abusive relationship, etc., etc.? And wow, um, this like this could be an entire series in itself. All of these questions, and perhaps maybe it should be. Um, we've kind of, kind of got the rest of the year planned out, but maybe we'll look at next year. Um, so we are literally just brushing over this topic tonight. Um, so what I want to say is this: please, 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 please join a discipleship group. Um, could our discipleship group leaders who are here, not all of them are here tonight, but those ones who are here, could they just quickly just stand up? Look at these beautiful people. Um, yeah. Um, come and see one of these guys. Uh, if you can't make it to one of their groups, they can get you connected to someone else's group. Um, we have lots of discipleship groups. Uh, and You can sit down now. Well, you can just stay standing the whole message if you like. Um, but join a discipleship group because... We, we, again, are going to be brushing over... The, you heard the depth of like questions that are here. We're not going to address all of them. What I'm going to be doing tonight is, is really talking about um, what is marriage so that we can come... To, and then we will, at the end, answer some of these questions, um, but not in, any, not in as much depth as they really deserve because we've got one week, right? And people do want to eat the yummy food that's next door some, at some point tonight. Um, the other thing I want to say is um, please, just, like, please don't get like, offended and just leave. Get offended and stay, please. Like, you're allowed to get offended, but I would encourage you, if this offends you tonight, um, don't run away. Get deeper into community. Let's talk about that, because we're not afraid 
Um, I'm not afraid of your anger. I'm not afraid of disappointment. I'm not afraid of upsetting some people. Uh, and we would rather they actually engage with us over that. Uh, even if nothing upsets you, um, maybe something here should unsettle you a little bit. All of us have uh, a life to be examined. So dig deeper into community. Don't run away from it uh, if anything upsets you or concerns you. Um, all that to be said, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the uh, ability to uh, have this series. Um, And as we bring this series to a close with this topic, Lord, uh, we want to pray that you would be present by your spirit, that you would uh, have this sermon not just be some um, ideas or things that I've sketched out or written down, but that you would come and speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, The parts that are just uh, rubbish, Lord, that are just... Uh, my own imagination, would you help those parts not to stick in the parts that are your word? Uh, would you sink them deep into our hearts? Would you transform us by your word um, as we uh, consider these things together? We thank you for your goodness and your graciousness to us. Amen. So I want to start tonight by asking uh, this question. Um, I would love us to, to tonight, just briefly as we start this message, find the person in the room uh, least digitally connected. So um, just as a, a bit of a... Why doesn't everyone just stand up, those who, who are able, um, just stand up briefly. I didn't actually plan to do this. This is not in my notes. Spare of the, head, spare of the moment thing. Um, sit down if you have Facebook. <laughs> uh, sit down if you have Twitter. Instagram, um, Foursquare, um, help me out, people. I don't know what Snapchat. Snapchat, a smartphone, a, new, a newspaper subscription. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I guess what I wanted to point out is that we are all uh, deeply digitally connected. Uh, we are, the world is more connect, interconnected than ever. Um, Harold will get you online soon. Um, I hear they're going to bring the NBN out soon. Um, it's probably just going to be to the node, though, so don't worry. Um, but I think the thing is, like, this stuff is so attractive to us, partly as part of our culture, but also we actually all within us, I believe, and I believe it's there uh, by creation, actually we, we all have a, a desperate and deep desire for connection. We want to be connected to other people on the whole. And I think we have a a deep and desperate desire for companionship. So these researchers compiled... Now, actually, I think this is like... If you're a researcher, this is cheating. But anyway, that's that's probably uh, research methods aside. But the researchers compiled the results of 218 other studies. There's the cheating. Don't do your own study. Just compile everyone else's results. Um, But they did compile the results of 218 other studies on loneliness... And what they found may or maybe may not surprise you. So from this compilement of all these other studies, they they found that loneliness uh, is shown to have... The result of loneliness is a 50% increased risk of early death for those who self-report as lonely or socially isolated. 50% increase in early risk of death. And that may not sound surprising to you until you kind of realise or hear the other statistic, and this is kind of roughly, but um, obesity shows roughly a 30% increase of risk in early death. And so what this report found and what these studies found, even though they cheated, what they found is this, is that 
loneliness and social isolation uh, in their studies found that um, that was a greater risk of early death than obesity. So it's actually significant. The other thing that we actually do as a society and a culture, I think we realise this, because we uh, send people to prison uh, and we lock them up for crimes, but if a prisoner does something wrong, what do we do? Like, you're already in jail, we, we can't really do anything else. Now, I don't think we kind of do this so much in Australia, uh, but um, what actually happens to the worst of the worst prisoners, they get solitary. They get isolated. They get taken away from community. It's actually a form of torture to isolate people from community. Why is that? I mean, even introverts, of which you may be able to tell I am not, um, even introverts occasionally like, like to crawl out of the, the cave of blanket fort and interact with people. We crave connection, companionship. And I want to put forward the idea we were created for relationship and it's because it's in our very nature. Um, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27, speaks of, of the creation uh, narrative. And, and this is the, the story of, of God uh, creating the world and creating all the creatures in the world. And so we have the, the seven days, and, and um, we're going to jump in uh, towards the end of this process and, and talk about the creation of, of mankind. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, that's great. Feel free to crack it open. There's some in the pews. If not, it's going to be on the screen. I think all of them tonight will be on the screen as well. Uh, if you have a smartphone, I'm going to presume you're not teaching Harold how to get on Facebook. You're actually using the Bible. Um, we'll give you the generosity of that uh, presumption. So feel free to grab that out as well. Um, we're going to look at this. And this is about... This is really important because it's about our very nature or our essence or, or uh, how, where we're from and what, that's, what that means for us. So it says this, God said... I want you to listen very carefully to the language here. Let, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, did God kind of like have a bit of a, like a mental snap here and all of a sudden start like speaking like the queen? Like, let's make him in our image. No, God says our image after our likeness because we actually have a God who is a triune God. That is, our God that we worship is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one person. And so within the very nature of God is a community is relationship, is, is eternal, ongoing, loving relationship. And so being made in the image of a triune God, a God of community, is the fact that that image of being one of community, a, a person craving connection, is, this, is that we have relationship in our very nature. The triune God of, of continual, eternal, loving, interdependent relationship made us. And that image is stamped upon us. And that means that our very core is a longing for deep community and deep connection. So this means that we need deep community. 
And so I would actually say and suggest that in our um, social media saturated world and, and in our just our modern world of um, everyone seeming so busy but not really being busy because we're just looking down at our screens, uh, in this world of that, what we need more than ever to be as the church is a place of community and deep, real connection. And so I want to encourage and challenge us all to be a part of the solution of that, that God-given creation desire for connection and, the, and that is to be a part of the community, to join a discipleship group, to commit to being there for others, to get out from behind the screen when you can, to perhaps even talk to your neighbours. Whoa, he's crazy. To, you know, not just drive into your uh, garage and go in through the internal door, but to occasionally be out the front. I want to exp- I'm going to expand on this idea of, of being people who are made in the image of a trying God for connection uh, as we talk about uh, marriage as well. But, but, but this being known and this knowing and being known uh, in marriage that we're going to talk about is, is an extension or, again, a reflection of God. So what I want to say tonight to a room full of people who I think the bulk of people in this room would be single you might have a boyfriend or girlfriend, but single and you're not married. So what I want to say is that intimacy is not just available in marriage, but it's a gift to us. Um, and I also want to point out that, that marriage is temporary, momentary, and serves a purpose. Marriage is actually not primarily about us, but it's about God. And when we understand that, it helps us to see marriage rightly, and that, in turn, will actually clarify a lot of the issues and questions around what marriage is and is not, and perhaps should be. And it also helps to clarify what what healthy relationships and dating and singleness and pursuing marriage, if that's what you want to pursue, might also look like. So I want to put forward the idea that, that out of our creation order, marriage is, is for companionship, yes, but it's actually also more than that. It's to help us display, in some ways, the glory of God. Marriage is way less about us and way more about God. The big idea I want to put before you today is that, that, that marriage itself, while not necessary, you, can, you do not have to be married. You do not have to get married. If you're single, you, you feel free to remain single. You're allowed to be single. Some churches don't think that's true, but you are allowed to be single. Don't feel pressure to get married if you don't want to get married. But this, that marriage is an embodiment of the gospel. For those who do get married, it's an embodiment of the gospel. What I mean by embodiment is it, it's, a, it's a representation, it's a, it's a physical thing that shows us what the gospel is like. A reflection of, of God's relationship with us is what is seen in marriage. So marriage isn't primarily about us, but about God. And, and human marriage is a sign pointing to the glorious realities of Jesus and the way that he pursues us and loves us and accepts us. Now, I've seen a lot of faces around the room that are just not convinced that that's what marriage is about. And, and what I want to do is to show you that the Bible actually uses the language, language of marriage to talk about God and his people. And so we're going to go through some slabs of scripture and what I want us to do is to to just listen to the language in these verses that that God is using to talk about himself and his people. 
And what we're actually going to see is that marriage is primarily not about us, it's, it's God's thing. And in fact, our marriages that we have as humans are simply reflections that point towards the reality of God pursuing his people. So Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33 says this, and just listen to how God speaks of himself. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, God's calling himself a husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. A lot of people know that I, sh- the, I will put my uh, word in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The context is God is the people's husband. Ezekiel 16 verses 8 to 14 says this, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. I mean, God's not allowed to talk like this, is he? Like, he's got to be all serious. He can't be romantic. Anyway, let's just... You were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. This is like a symbol of betrothal. Like what we see in the book of Ruth, as Boaz spreads his garment. I made, you my, vow to, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is God speaking to his people. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. Sounds a bit like a a modern day wedding dress, you know, embroidery, silk, beautiful shoes. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. That's God talking about his people at that time, the nation of Israel. And Isaiah 54, 5 says this, For your maker, maker being God, is your husband. It's pretty clear. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Long before we thought about marriage, God thought about marriage. This theme continues in the New Testament. Jesus being presented as the groom and the church, God's people, being presented as the bride. So Christian men, just, just I know that some of you guys in here are pretty manly. Some of you guys, you make me look like small and, and weak and, and you're very manly men, but just bear with me for a minute. You are part of the bride, men. You okay with that? All right. So you'll find your white dresses at the back, and uh, <laughs> so Jesus and the church, the groom and the bride, entering into a marriage covenant. In fact, 
we see language all throughout the New Testament that when Jesus comes again, it's a wedding feast. Have you ever wondered whose wedding that is? It's yours and Jesus's. It's ours and Jesus's wedding. John the baptizer, when he was asked if he was the Messiah, he actually, he kind of calls himself the Messiah's best man at his wedding. He says this in John 3, verses 28 to 30, he says, you yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. The bridegroom being uh, the old school term for like groom. We just dropped bride for some reason. I think men were too insecure to want to be called bridegrooms. They just wanted to be grooms. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist is saying, like, I'm pretty much, I'm the best man, this wedding's going to happen. And post-resurrection, Jesus continues, he continues to be spoken about as the husband and the church as his bride. We have this passage in Ephesians 5, which are often used at weddings, not often used at weddings in churches where they're uncomfortable with language about submission and things like that. Not often this one's skipped for like Corinthians, but this is often used at some weddings. And it's really a good passage, but it actually, and it says it itself, it's actually not primarily talking about us, it's talking about God. Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. I will go on, but I just want to, uh, even not in my notes, but just pause there and say, like, we believe in the Word of God and we believe that uh, the Word of God is, is our rule for, for life and for, for living and shows us uh, His truth. And so we believe this passage. Um, but the way that this passage has been lived out uh, historically in recent times uh, has been devastating for some women, devastating for some men, uh, and just completely misunderstood. So uh, we actually are a church that believes in the, the complementarity of men and women, that is that men and women are equal in substance, worth and value, but we're different. I mean, if you not notice that men and women are different. Men and women are different, surprise. So we believe that men and women are different, And if this is lived out, it's not actually a scary thing. We don't like that that, that word submit, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later as well, but but what we actually, we hear that part and and it grates us because we've seen it done poorly, but what we we don't 
here or what we don't see is the, the husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I want to say that um, we don't believe that, that women submit to men. We don't believe that. Um, we believe that from Scripture that in marriage, a wife is called to, to graciously submit to her husband. That doesn't have to be a scary thing because if the husband is loving her like Christ loved the church, he's literally giving himself up for her. And if he's not doing that, she shouldn't be submitting to him. If he is a sinful man, if he is uh, an abusive man, if he is a man who is not honoring her and loving her exactly how Christ would love the church, she ought not um, to submit to his sinfulness. She ought not to, to go along with his sin. And in fact, ought to, for that, that ought to be challenged. And so if this is working properly, it's not a scary proposition. If this is working poorly, um, it's, an, it's a, an instance where, um, uh, it's an instance where uh, the church should, should come, lovingly come around that couple uh, and uh, guide them back to a place where the husband can actually love like Christ loved, and that is literally giving himself up for her, laying down his own preferences, laying down his own sinful desires for the good and joy of his wife, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So it says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there in verse 32, this is actually about Jesus and us, but that's a model for us. Husband and wife in their marriage reflect a marriage covenant that is actually between Jesus and the church. When we think about marriage, we don't think about, okay, well, Jesus and the church, that's a reflection of our marriages. No, our marriages are a reflection of Jesus and the church. That is the source. And so all of this was, in fact, God's idea. In Genesis 2, uh, verses 15 to 25, we... uh, hear about the creation of the first woman. It says this from verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, and that day you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of the Lord, the Lord God, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This is an interesting exercise. Like, how come this part is sandwiched in between what comes before and after? Lord, the Lord God has said, it is not good that, that man shall be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him, his helpmate, his partner. And then all of a sudden God's bringing all the animals in front of Adam 
and then we have the creation of the woman. I think what, what God is trying to say here is that in all of creation, you know, dog might be man's best friend, but he's not fit. He's not the appropriate companion. God brings all the animals in front of Adam, and it's as if to say, you know, all these other animals have their companion, they have their male and female, they have their companion, and it's pointing out to Adam the depth of his need, of humanity's need for each other. Men are not better than women. Women are not better than men. We are fit for each other. So man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones. I think he was sick of looking at the animals by now. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You've just, you've just been witnesses to the first wedding. That's what's happening here. And, and uh, this, uh, for those of you, there's a couple, few engaged couples here uh, tonight. Um, would you, maybe you could sing your vows like Adam did. There's a challenge for you, Liam. The first wedding, and I, I think it was probably a musical. It's, it's pretty awesome. Maybe that's what life was like before the fall. Everyone just sang to each other. So this, we see this marriage is God's idea. So what, what is this language of helper? Uh, his helper that was fit for him. Now, th- this could be like, I think there might be, be some women here who's like, helper? What are you, what are you talking about, helper? Um, well, we all know that like men need help, right? But um, this language is actually, should be empowering language. Because all throughout the Old Testament, God is spoken about as a helper. So this language of helper is not subordinate language. This is not, you're the helper, he's the master. This this is like the helper of someone who needs help. God is spoken about all throughout the Old Testament as our, as our helper. In fact, in times of war, when God's people were going against their enemies, the exact same Hebrew word for helper is used of God as he comes in and fights the battle with the people. This is not a, a weak helper. This is a strong helper. And so I want to put forward this idea that, that we are a church that, um, that puts forward and, and uh, would, would preach the idea of, of complementary relationships where men and women are equal but different and complementing each other. Um, and we don't think that means, and we do not want that to mean, that the women in our church in their marriages are a 1950s housewife docile. That's not what this means. That's not biblical. If you particularly like to dress in a 1950s style and enjoy cooking, that's awesome for you and do that, but that's not what is expected we want our women to be fierce helpers. It's not good for men to be alone. And the mission that God has called men and women to, we need each other to fully express that mission together. Not that we have to be married, but that in the church and in God's people, men and women are different but equally valued, equally needed to help one another on the mission of God. So we are designed for, for deep and intimate relationship. 
modelled after the Trinity, God three in one. It's interesting that, that God is, is three persons in one, and in marriage, uh, we become one flesh. We are two persons in one. So it's almost as though you know, God is three in one. I'm not, I'm not actually about to suggest polygamous marriage. We're not going there. Um, but it's almost as if God is saying, in the same way that I am three in one, in a marriage you become two in one. And it's almost like, well, God is kind of um, greater in his three in oneness, but we model that and represent that and our relationships are as to be um, open and close in the same way that God the Father, Son and Spirit are open and close in, in marriage, our two in oneness a one fleshness is modelled after the Trinity's oneness. We can still have that deep relationship in the church, in community with one another. You do not have to be married to be whole. But marriage is a representation of and a testimony to God and his Trinitarian nature in its oneness. So marriage is, is for raising children, for glorifying God, for sanctification. Anyone who's married knows it's for sanctification. It, shows, it exposes all your sins and for companionship. But how does our day and age view marriage differently? What is our common cultural view of marriage? I would suggest that that maybe not this overtly, but at a subconscious level or perhaps mildly conscious, it's this. It's Hollywood. It's Disney. It's lesser Jane Austen. Love her. But her desire and design for this narrative, it makes marriage ultimate, doesn't it? Like the end of the book is always the wedding. The end of the Disney movie Generally speaking, that some of the new ones are a bit different, but the, generally speaking, it's like this romance that cultivates the end of the movie is the marriage. It's the Hollywood romantic comedy where the end of the happy ending is, is the marriage. They lived happily ever after. And it's almost this, this thing that has seeped into our culture that, that marriage is fulfillment. Is it not? That marriage is the high point. It's the fulfillment of our freedoms. Individual happiness. Romantic fulfillment. It's like the crescendo of the movie is the marriage. And I want to put forward that this has failed us. This is not a healthy way to view marriage at all. And it's actually selfish and doomed to fail. Because if we view marriage in this way, then marriage is a focus on my fulfillment, my romantic needs or my something else. If marriage is simply the highest form of romance or the highest point of feeling and love that you can be filled with, what happens when you fall out of love? Or what happens when life gets hard? Now, this is the version of marriage where people fall out of love and decide that, well, we don't love each other anymore, so we're going to get divorced. If marriage is primarily about that fulfillment of the deepest desire of love, you know, finally, Mr. Darcy comes to his senses and proposes, and that's the fulfillment, swoon. As good as the movie is, I admit, I like it. As good as the book is, I admit, I've read it a few times. Um, 
that can't be enough. If we allow that cultural narrative to fulfill what we think of as marriage, as being right, we're going to get it wrong. A, uh, a relative of mine got married in a civil ceremony and, and the celebrant said of the vows, you know, the traditional vow, I think, is till death do us part. And the vow at this wedding was as long as their love shall last. That's not marriage. I put to you, marriage is a covenant. Just like between God and his people, but God relentlessly pursues, regardless of his people's faithfulness, regardless of his, of his people's returning that love. Marriage is a covenant and not a contract and not simply feelings. We don't fall out of love because love is something that we actually have to choose. The common cultural narrative is that, that marriage is primarily about love. And my hope and my wish is for those who, who are married and those who will marry in the future, which won't be everyone, but those who do, is that your marriages are filled with love. But I'm, we're going to pop the little Disney bubble right now. Marriage is not primarily about love. That may shock you. Hopefully marriages are full of love, but it's not primarily about the fleeting feelings of romance. So what is marriage for and, and how does it reflect God? Uh, on page 16 of, his, of, of a really good book by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage, I recommend it to you. Uh, Tim Keller writes that marriage is this. It's, I, could, I like, thought about coming up with my own definition, but there's no point reinventing the wheel when he's uh, made such a good one. He's written this and I think it's good. He, Tim Keller writes that marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman According to the Bible, God devised marriage to reflect the saving love for us in Christ, to refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. Nowhere in this uh, definition does it actually speak about love, although love will be all around this if it's done well. According to the Bible, I'll read it again, God devised marriage to reflect the saving love for us in Christ, to refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all of this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. So for example, a man pursuing a woman. It's a picture of God pursuing you. It's a gospel picture. Back to Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives as, as, church, as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So in marriage, husbands lay down their lives for their wives because Christ laid down his life for us. Husbands lovingly lead and disciple their wives, washing them in the word because Jesus is daily renewing and washing us through the power of his word. Husbands love their wives as their own body just as Jesus loves his body, the church, and feeds it and nourishes it and takes care of it. So we see that that marriage itself is meant to be a representation of the gospel. The way that we love and interact with each other within marriage, it's meant to point to Jesus and the gospel. Now, none of us ever are going to do that perfectly. We will hurt each other. We will fail which is why we have the gospel of Christ, so that we can find forgiveness in Jesus. You know, wives, and those of you who will be wives one day, your husband is not your saviour. He will not be your saviour. He will fail you. But his call is to model for you after Jesus. And wives, where it says in the text, you know, respect your husband, submit your husband, it's the same love and submission that the church we have to Jesus as we follow him as our head. And so ultimately, we don't ultimately submit to our husband, we ultimately submit to Jesus. And so if your husband's going against Jesus, go with Jesus. But we do that to model the church and Jesus, the church and Christ. And so I want to put forward to you this idea that, that marriage should be filled with love and romance and, and candlelit dinners, if that's what you're into personally. Candles are so-so. But, you know, love is good. You know, maybe um, after this, uh, yeah, um, you know, after the service, everyone's probably going to go to my wife and be like, are you okay? Does he love you? Um, <laughs> marriage should be filled with love, but it's not primarily about love. It's primarily about us imaging and showing the glory of the gospel and living that out. And so, if this is what marriage is, how does that relate to our questions from the start of the sermon? Someone asked, why, why can't I live with my partner outside marriage? Why, can't, why is that? Why can't I do that? Now, I'd actually put forward the idea that there's a question behind this question. This question is actually really, um, really about sex, isn't it? Because I really highly doubt that, that we live together like the asexual Teletubbies and just hold hands and giggle. So I, I think this question's actually really about sex outside of marriage, not just about living in the same building like the Teletubbies might and just hold hands and giggle. And I think ultimately it comes down to this. It doesn't reflect the gospel or the nature of the God in whom marriage is founded. You may not know this, and if you're a Christian, I hope you do know this, but, but God doesn't just hang out with you for a few years and then decide to save you. God doesn't kind of get a little bit of worship on the side, but keep his options open from you. No, he's all in. 
He loves with a ferocious love. He's not like a wet fish lover who's in one day, out the next. He's not just there for the good times and then we'll see and if you get sick, I'm going to go. And I think the reason that God has designed that, that sex and intimacy shall be within marriage is that to reflect his gospel, we need to be all in. God designed the expression of intimacy that is sex to be within the boundaries of marriage because it's a security that allows for freedom. Now, for anyone who, who is currently having sex outside of a marriage relationship or who has had done that in the past, there is forgiveness, there is freedom, there is not judgment here, we want to love you. Um, but I want to put forward the idea that sex outside of the commitment of marriage is inherently selfish. It's about my pleasure, what I can get, and if you don't please me, I'm done. If it doesn't suit my needs anymore, I'm out. And I think the reason that, that God has designed sex to be within marriage is because that expression of intimacy and oneness is designed to reflect something of the Trinity. And so he's put it within marriage because he wants us to be free and open and not reserved, and to be giving of ourselves generously. I think the reason God doesn't want it is because it's a distorted reflection of the gospel. He is so much more deeply committed to us than that. And he wants our relationships to reflect that too. God's not hanging out with us for his own pleasure. God pursues us for intimacy. He commits to us for intimacy with us for our good and our joy, not just for what he can get from us, a little bit of worship here on the side, and then he'll go and get some worship from the Buddhists. No, he's committed to us. Someone asked, and I'll read it word for word, although I'd love to ask this question differently, but word for word, the question is, why should homosexuals obey the Bible when they don't believe in God? When does truth become hate speech? Um, I'd like to ask that question differently because I think there are uh, Christians who experience or who feel same-sex attraction. So I don't want to presume that, that all homosexuals don't believe in God. That's why I'd ask that question differently. But, so I think there's two different categories of people that we're talking about here. Um, and it's a great question. Um, same-sex attracted people who do not believe in God, my primary instinct is not to want to tell them how to behave, but it's to want to tell them about Jesus. So I don't want to primarily tell same-sex attracted people to obey Jesus. I want to tell them to know Jesus. And I think truth becomes hate speech when it's more concerned with simply being right than loving the person. Now, it is not loving to deny the truth to save someone's feelings. But I want to put forward the idea that what we see, the way we see truth talked about in Scripture, truth is talked about as a sword and not a mallet. So the Word of God is talked about being divisive, it divides. It doesn't smash. The Word is called a sword, not so we can cut people down with it, but because it helps things to be clear-cut. Is our desire, when we, when we put forward what we believe to be the word of God and his design for sex and intimacy, is our desire to cut people down, to smash them, or to use a clear way to show that something can be clear-cut? 
So I think something becomes hate speech when it's our desire to hurt. It's our desire to smash, to cut down, instead of our desire to show things as being clear-cut. But for same-sex attracted Christians, I would say the issue comes down to this. It's a matter of how seriously we take the word of God and God's holiness and how seriously we take his promises. So when it comes to to living with a partner, so even for straight couples choosing to live with a partner outside of marriage and sleep with someone outside of marriage, or when it comes to the issue of gay uh, relationships and gay marriage, the question becomes not this or that, it becomes how seriously you take the holiness of God and how seriously you take his word. Some people have put out articles or, or say things that, that the Bible is not clear uh, on these issues and scholarship is out on these issues when it actually is very clear. So the issue is not whether or not God's word says that sex should be within the confines of heterosexual marriage. God's word clearly says that. The issue is, do we take that seriously? Do we put our own preferences above that Because regardless if someone is same-sex attracted or attracted to people of the opposite gender or somewhere in between, both, none of us, according to the word of God, can have sex with whomever we please. All of us have restrictions placed on our sexual intimacy. For straight people, that restriction is placed on just their spouse. And for same-sex attracted people, that restriction is also placed on just their spouse. And we believe that that marriage is not our idea, so it's not our opinion to decide what it is. But God has laid down through the complementary relationship of male and female the pattern for marriage. If marriage is not primarily about love, it's not primarily about attraction, it's about displaying and reflecting the glory of God. If marriage is simply about love, if marriage is simply about feelings of attraction and romance, then marriage could be about that. Being, marriage should be about being, marrying who you're attracted to or who you're romantic with. But that's not what marriage is. So issues like this become way more clear-cut when we realise that marriage is not primarily about attraction. Marriage is not primarily about sex. Marriage is not primarily about romance but it's about displaying the pattern of the gospel in the way that God pursues us and loves us. What does God think about divorce? Can a Christian get divorced? Our culture treats marriage cheaply. And if marriage is simply the ultimate expression of love, then when the love fades or it gets hard, of course we get divorced. I want to put forward the idea that if you're you're getting a prenup, you shouldn't get married. It's like, let's plan our divorce before we get married. I want to challenge us to consider this. Does, Does God give up on us when we fail him? Does God let his pursue all of us wane when we run away. If our marriages are to reflect the gospel, then it's not about us and our fulfillment. 
It's about our glorifying God. Now, a healthy marriage goes through seasons and, and matures, and there will be romance and there will be feelings of love. But I want to put forward to you this idea that, that love and the feelings of love are the fruit of commitment, not the fuel for commitment. That the, the feeling of love, the romance, is actually a fruit of commitment and not the reason that we stay committed. Tim Keller again writes, our culture says that feelings of love are the basis for actions of love. So we act loving because we feel loving. And of course that can be true. But it is truer to say that actions of love can lead consistently to feelings of love. So we act loving and the fruit of that is that we feel loving. We view marriage as a covenant because we Covenants say that even if you break the contract, I'm not going anywhere. The difference between a covenant and a contract is that in a contract, if one party breaks it, the contract's over. In a covenant, if one party breaks it, the covenant remains. But this is in no way an excuse for abuse. If a marriage is abusive, you do not have to stay in that house, in that situation. I would encourage you to tell, if you're a, a member of this church, to tell the elders about it, to come and ask for help. Um, Ephesians 5 does not mean that men or women stay in abusive relationships. If that has ever been taught, that is wrong. That is not God's intention for marriage. And so we, we don't want anyone to hear this message tonight and think that that is okay or that is that have to kind of just knuckle down and get through it, that is not the gospel. Say, this is not an easy issue. It is a very hard issue. It's not simple. We would encourage you to reach out where you can and get help if that's you. Why am I still single? Well, perhaps there is some reason again, with the showering thing, or um, maybe need a haircut. But I'm not actually going to try and diagnose that from the pulpit. What I would encourage you, if this was your question, or if this was you, why am I still single? I would encourage you to get into a discipleship group. Allow others to speak into your life. I would not try and diagnose why you're still single from here, but there could be many reasons why you're still single. Perhaps you're called to singleness is something to consider, but perhaps there are things in your life. I want to put forward the idea of this. For anyone who is single and really desirous of of a relationship and, and perhaps eventually marriage, is this, that godly Christians find godliness sexy. So I would encourage you, if you are, why am I still single? Pursue God. If you are looking for a good, godly partner to have a relationship with. Instead of focusing on finding the partner, focus on your relationship with God. Now, I don't want that to be your motivation for going to Jesus. Like, oh, Jesus, I'm just coming to you so that I can have a, a hot boyfriend. That's not the idea here. But if you be loving Jesus, you, you don't have to focus on finding the ultimate partner. Godly Christians find godliness sexy. Uh, Sam uh, Albury, who's a pastor in the UK and an author, he puts 
um, singleness like this, which I think is helpful. He says this, both marriage and singleness point to the gospel. The former reflects its shape, but the latter its sufficiency. So marriages reflect the, the shape of the gospel, the form of the gospel. The singleness reflects the sufficiency of the gospel. You can uniquely reflect the sufficiency of the gospel as you await the ultimate wedding of Christ in the church. So I want to say, if you are single and you're like, why am I still single? Can I put forward you these encouragements? Being single is not a problem to be solved. It is okay to want and desire marriage. But marriage will not make you whole. It won't fill the void. It will change your life, but it has its own challenges. Don't believe Austin, don't believe Disney, don't believe Hollywood. Nobody completes you. But I want to encourage single people, you are not a human in waiting. Being single is not an obstacle to being fully human. It is, in fact, an expression of being fully human. For example, a woman's life does not really begin when she becomes a wife and a mum, but her life has become when she becomes a royal image-bearer of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul celebrates singleness. Marriage is, is actually, in fact, also temporary. It's a temporary state. Jesus teaches us in Luke 20 that we will not be married or given in marriage in the resurrection. So you seek marriage if you want, but it's not going to last beyond death. In fact, if we have a definition of wholeness that excludes Jesus, we might want to rethink that. Jesus was never married, and I would really not want to say that he was not whole. If you are single, you have more opportunity. Not responsibility, but opportunity for ministry. You're not any more responsible than married people, but you have the opportunity for ministry to be more flexible. You can have more deep relationships with more people. You know, marriage, you can have that too, but your spouse is your primary human relationship. And that limits your ability to be there at the drop of a hat for others and to develop deep relationships with many people. To be single is not wrong, is not less than. It is just a different way to display the gospel and point to the glory of God. We display the gospel in our singleness because God is sufficient for us. We display the gospel in our marriage because it is a model of the gospel. And perhaps this could be the same person asking this next question, why shouldn't I date a non-Christian guy? When all the Christian guys I've dated treat me the same way. Who are you dating? Send them to me. If they're treating you the same way, we'll have a chat. But I want to I say, recognize that um, all of us are fallen and will not be perfect and that only Jesus can love his bride perfectly. Um, my encouragement to this woman is that, that all men are fallen. And so none of them are going to be perfect. But that being said, just because a guy shows up at church does not make him a Christian man. So my encouragement to you, if the, the guys you are dating treat you the same way that non-Christians you are dating treat you, stop dating fools. 
I've seen where it ends. Uh, my encouragement to the single women in our church would be this. One of the best things you can do for the single men in our church is to expect more of them. And don't settle if they don't give it. I would like to say men actually like a challenge and they'll rise to it. And so one of the best things you can do for the men in that church is to not date any fools. I mean, if that fool asks you out, I give you permission to say to him, I don't date little boys, come back when you're a man. Men, if you are not treating the women in that church like sisters in Christ, you are not ready to date and pursue them. Women, if you're looking for a good man, ask yourself this. Does he treat women as images or image bearers? There's a difference. Does he have enough self-control to wait? Or is he pressuring me? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. Women, if he's not doing that, don't date him. And my encouragement would be pursue relationships in community, not in secret. The person that you're interested in, are they known in the community? Are you known? Get in a discipleship group and be known. It's my recurring theme. I would ask you to challenge yourself with this question. Young women, if you think about that guy you're into, do you want your sons to be like him? Because they will be. Men, do you want your daughters to be like her? Because they probably will be. My encouragement would be if the Christian guys you're dating are exactly the same as the non-Christian guys you're interested, you're interested, you are interested in, then stop dating Christian guys and start hanging out and waiting for Christian men. Marriage, the marriage that we are called to is a reflection of the gospel. It's a reflection of Jesus' love and pursuit of the church. We model ourselves and our relationships after the way that Jesus pursues and loves and all humans are called to love in the way of Christ. Self-sacrificial, self-giving love, not self-serving love. This tonight, um, I've reached the end, and this tonight is, is really just a broad brushstroke over all of these topics, which are not... This, none of this is sufficient enough detail. Um, so I would encourage you, get into the discipleship group and talk about this stuff more. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good and gracious to us that you made us for each other to be interdependent with other people. You made us for community. And we pray that as we seek to work out how that should look, that you would guide us by your spirit. By your word and your spirit, you would guide us into all truth. And we pray that you would allow us to be people who love as you love, who care as you care, 
and who model ourselves after your gospel. And we pray for uh, those who have been hurt uh, in community, in relationships, be they romantic or otherwise, Lord, that um, you would allow us to look to Christ uh, to find uh, forgiveness, to find restoration and renewal. Um, We thank you that you uh, love us perfectly even when we don't perfectly love each other. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.